Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. This is so weird, like for me. Like you're there and I'm here, and like if you, it's that moment when you tell your kids to do something and they just don't, like they don't register at all, except it's a sermon, and there could be hundreds of you not registering. I mean, I know you're there, but it doesn't feel like you're there, so we got to work on this together, people. So good morning. You can do better than that. Good morning. I hated that gag when I was live, and I still hate it now. Anyway, um, my name is Peter Hartwig, and every time I preach at City Church, I feel this need to reintroduce myself, which some of you have been coming for a long time, and you're like, we don't need an introduction. We need an apology after everything you did when you were a tyke and then a teenager, and now you're you, and I'm still here. Um, but some of you are maybe new or newer, in which case, um, I am a hologram of the man who was up here before, just younger. This is what he looked like before his wild years. As my dad never really had wild years. Anyway, uh, my dad's a lead pastor of this church, and uh, if you'd like to see some father-son bonding, every single day over however long the coronavirus pandemic lasts. My dad and I have been coming out with these devotional videos that are going out, uh, they're going chapter by chapter through the book of Luke and then the book of Acts. And there are four ways that you can watch or get on the list for those videos. Um, uh, one is an all church email list that uh, you can get on if you're not. Um, another is our website, the citychurchseville.com website, which I think to, as of tomorrow, you'll be able to get the devotional videos just through the landing page. And then the City Church app and the City Church YouTube channel, which you're probably on right now if you're watching. Um, other than those devotionals, I no longer have any official standing at City Church. Um, I split my time between uh, DC, where I'm theologian in residence at National Community Church, and Princeton Seminary, where I'm an MDiv student. And I don't know if you've heard, uh, but a global pandemic has hit New Jersey, which you might be thinking is just normal for New Jersey. Um, but this one is bad and has severely displaced me from my dorm. And I haven't been able to see my barber in a couple weeks, but like, don't worry, Michael, there's nobody like you for me. I won't let anybody else touch, I mean, my family touches up the back of my neck every once in a while, but it's not the same, and it's not what it looks like. Um, so I'm back home now, which incidentally is the title for this series. Um, and I, and this might be like millennial whininess, but I'm anxious that I'm now a tele, like a real live televangelist. So like if I say like I care about you, you're like you don't care, but like you could be in, you could be in Portugal watching this. Like I don't. Um, so. But I still believe that church is church, and that city church is still this family. And so before we get this plane off the tarmac, I'd like to pray specifically about that, to invite God to keep us a church, even when church looks a little different, or maybe even for some of us kind of suspicious. So if you'd pray with me, I hope you're praying. Let's pray. Um, Almighty God, uh, heaven and earth is yours. And lots of things are happening right now that we don't understand. Um, but we still believe that your spirit is in the world and has been poured out on all flesh, as Acts says. 
And Lord, we're not a production company, and we're not a broadcasting company. Um, we're a church. We're a group of people who have been called by your name to follow you in the world that you've made, and the world that you love and you're redeeming. And so, Father God and Lord Jesus, keep us a church in your spirit. We ask this in the name of the Son. Amen. Say amen. I don't know. Anyway, last week, my father started off the sermon series on home. Um, and my dad mostly talked about God's home through the theme of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, where does God live? And he didn't talk so much about our own personal homes. And that's probably because uh, right now the Hartwig home is perfect. And uh, there's no tension and nothing has gone wrong. And so we have two college-age girls and me back from having our own individual apartments into the suitcase of our house. And uh, they think I am very cool, and they never think I'm selfish, and I agree with all of their decisions, and I look up to them a lot. So that's going great. Um, but no, we're adjusting. Like, everybody's adjusting. Like, everything is different, and we're just trying to, like, to, to make it work. And so that's where I'd like to start with this experience of home. And it's not lost on me. Like having a sermon series on home right now is kind of like if you were being attacked by a shark and someone was like, have you seen Jaws? Like it just kind of throws in your face the thing that's already happening. But the hope is that the Bible has a, a framework to help us see what's going on theologically, like what God does in our homes. So if, if I had a title for this sermon, it would be The Longing for Home. So let's talk about the idea of home. Like, what's a home? St. Augustine once uh, sort of joked that he understood time perfectly until someone asked him to explain it. And I feel like home is kind of like that. It's like this idea that we all feel and agree upon and have, but like, where's the definition? We, some of the oldest stories we have are about home, like the Odyssey, uh, where you have these heroes who come home. And ancient people would read thousands of pages just to follow the story of somebody coming home, or like, Homeward Bound is a story we have about going home. And even kind of the parent trap, if you think about it, is a story about going home. Uh, or we have like all these cultural phrases about home, like uh, home is where the heart is, or there's no place like home, or uh, some of us are homemakers, or some people we say are homeless. But, but home, ha it's like there, right? Like it's this cultural, very real. It's like I'm in my mid-20s, in case you couldn't tell. And uh, I kind of like don't owe nothing to nobody at this stage in life, so I travel a lot, like to see people or talk. Or, and there's a couple key places in my life where I go back to, um, and you people know who you are if you're watching, uh, that when I show up at your house, and it's usually way later than I said I was going to arrive, and I'm super tired and unfun and a little irritable, but when I walk in the door, you don't say like, welcome to our house. Welcome to our house is like, we don't wear shoes in this house, actually, so if you could take your shoes off when you come inside. But when I show up, what you say is welcome home, which is like, you can have anything in the fridge, and if you're a little annoying, we'll love you anyway. Or if you're like super bothered by something, we can talk about that, and it's okay if you sleep in and you take the weighted blanket again. And, and every time somebody says that to me, welcome home, I don't know if you're being cute or nice or whatever, but it really does kind of get me. Like I get a little, I don't like to show it, but I get a little verklempt and it feels like that little kid that I think we all keep inside of us, like he, he gets welcomed somewhere. The best description of home I know comes from the novelist Frederick Buechner, um, who was also an ordained Presbyterian minister. 
And I'd like to read a long but very good quote. There's going to be a couple long but very good quotes in this sermon um, about what Fred Beekner says about home. It's really important, though, to note on the front end that Beekner had a difficult experience of home. And so, um, well, we'll talk about that in a second. But this is what Frederick Beekner writes in a book called The Longing for Home, which I'll admit is where I stole the title from. Home, sweet home. There's no place like home. Home is where you hang your hat. Or, as a waggish friend of mine once said, home is where you hang yourself. That's where we're going to come back to. Home is the sailor home from sea and the hunter home from the hill. What home brings to mind before anything else, I believe, is a place. And in its fullest sense, not just the place where you happen to be living at the time, but a very special place with very special attributes, which make it clearly distinguishable from all other places. The word home sums up a place, more specifically a house within that place, which you have rich and complex feelings about, about a place where you feel or did feel once, uniquely at home, which is to say, a place where you feel you belong, and which in some sense belongs to you, a place where you feel that all is somehow ultimately well, even if things aren't going all that well at any given moment. To think about home eventually leads you to think back to your childhood home, the place where your life started, the place which on and off and throughout your life you keep going back to, if only in dreams and memories, and which is apt to determine the kind of place, perhaps a place inside yourself, that you spend the rest of your life searching for, even if you're not aware that you're searching. I suspect that those who as children never had such a place, in actuality, had instead some kind of dream of such a home, which played for them an equally crucial part. First time I read that, that was one of those, like, I wish I'd written that. Um, but I think Beekner has his finger on a couple, like, key things about home and how we experience it. One is that home is attached to your childhood. It's hard to think about home without thinking about your childhood home. Another is that home is like a complicated idea. So maybe you've read Beekner, and if you have, you'd know that when Beekner was a, a kid, really young, his father dressed to go to work and got into the garage and started the car and never opened the garage door and breathed in the fumes until he died. And that key and tragic moment that happened in Beekner's childhood home becomes a central part of the stories that he'll tell and the poems that he'll write and the autobiographical essays like this one that he published. Um, home isn't always actually such a great place for a lot of people. Home is maybe complicated at best. Maybe you had the sort of home that you don't want to go back to, or maybe you never actually had a home at all. And so the idea of home isn't just like warm fuzzies and welcome home. Home is complicated. But still, Beekner seems to know that we long for home, that no matter what kind of home we had or didn't have, we still want to go home. And interestingly enough, the Bible kind of knows that. So if you turn with me to the 11th chapter of Hebrews, that's where we're going to camp out for the rest of this sermon. Uh, some background on the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is sometimes called the Epistle to the Hebrews, which isn't a great name because it's not actually a letter. Like, it doesn't have a sender or a receiver or a carbon, carby, a carbon copy or a sign-off. Um, it's actually a sermon, probably, that was assumedly preached somewhere, um, but preached to people who, one, have a clear Jewish ethnic background, and two, are in deep persecution. 
And we know that because on the one hand, Hebrews keeps telling people not to give up. We're not sure what precisely is going wrong, but it sounds really bad. And the, the other uh, reason we think that the audience is Jewish in background is because the imagery, even for the New Testament, is unusually strong and unusually strongly Torah-focused. So we have this uh, sermon written to a church in persecution, um, and this, the sermon calls itself in chapter 13 a brief exhortation, a brief 13 chapters long exhortation. And if you were to look at the letter, uh, at the, um, the sermon to the Hebrews from like 10,000 feet, it would look something like this. This is the outline of Hebrews. Chapter one and two do this thing where they tell us that Jesus is greater than the angels in the Torah. And then chapters three and four tell us that Jesus is a, a better Moses and a new promised land, or leads us into a new promised land. Chapters five to seven talk about sacrifices and covenant in which Jesus is our perfect sacrifice and an eternal covenant. And then chapters eight to 10, uh, chapters, uh, oh, I messed it up. Five to seven, sorry, as you can see on the slide. Five to seven are the priests in Melchizedek. 8 to 10 are sacrifices and covenant. And 11 to 13 is this encouragement to follow Jesus. And uh, you might not be able to tell us at first, but those chapters 1 to 10 are actually following the story of the Old Testament systematically through. So in the ancient world, there was this belief that the angels had actually been the vehicle by which God gave the Torah to Moses. And so what you have is Jesus is better than the angels, better than the Torah, better than Moses to whom it's given, and better than the promised land that he led the people into. That's Genesis and Exodus uh, into Joshua. And then you've got this uh, whole discourse about Jesus being a better priest, a better sacrifice, a better covenant. And that's all about the way in which the life of ancient Israel was set up. And so the author of Hebrews is actually taking a Jewish audience through their own history and showing how Jesus is the same thing because he's a high priest and a sacrifice and a covenant, but he does it in a new way. And it keeps reminding us at every turn, if you read through the book of Hebrews, how much would be lost if we left that Jesus behind. Hebrews is immensely realistic at the same time as it's immensely encouraging. And so uh, it's become kind of a near companion for me in this time. But I want to look at chapter 11, which is sometimes called the Faith Hall of Fame. And it's this moment where the author of Hebrews, whoever he was, um, takes us through the kind of heroes of the faith uh, and uh, holds them up as examples of faith. And the one that we're going to look at is um, Abraham's story that starts for us in verse 8. So if you go to chapter 11, verse 8, in the English Standard Version, which is what I personally read, not for any particular reason, just because it's the best. Just kidding. Anyway, chapter 11, verse 8 goes like this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Those are his sons. Heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Parenthetically, that's just one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, 
We're born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So on its face, this passage is a teaching about faith. Um, But there's a way of, the way in which Hebrews decides to read these familiar Old Testament stories is actually sort of odd if you think about it for a moment. Authors of this period, who were devout Jews, they wouldn't see Abraham's fulfillment to have children or to go seeking a promised land as, well, they wouldn't see them as unfulfilled. They would see those as decidedly fulfilled. And if you keep reading through the chapter 11 of Hebrews, you'd look at David and Solomon and other lesser-known characters like Jephthah and Barach and Rahab. And the author of Hebrews doesn't see those as accomplishments or completions or fulfillments. The author of Hebrews sees them as further signs to deeper promises and deeper fulfillments and deeper callings. And so what we have is Abraham's story about looking for a homeland, about finding a homeland, isn't actually about him finding a homeland. It's pointing us, Hebrews is saying, to something deeper. The word homeland here in Greek is patris, which is related to the word pater. And it's only actually used once. Uh, In the translation you have and I have, uh, it probably uh, says maybe land or country. Um, But that's slightly too narrow, maybe, for the word patris. Uh, When we think homeland, we definitely think nation state. And that would not have been true in the ancient world. Uh, A homeland or a fatherland, is where your people are from. It's where you're from. And so I'd like to sort of retranslate this passage with the uh, slightly vaguer but possibly more accurate phrase, place you're from. So this is a little tricky, but I'm trying to bring the Greek grammar through in the English. God help us all. Okay, so could uh, we get the slide up that has the little things that I've done with the slashy in the? I hope that's up. So on my translation that I have written and slashed out, it looks like this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a place to be from. If they had been thinking of that place to be from, crossed out land, there's no noun there. It's just if they were seeking for that one from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better place to be from that is a heavenly place to be from. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. Hebrews is telling us a really weird story, which is people going somewhere in the middle of their lives to look for somewhere to be from. Hebrews is portraying faith as a longing for home, but more specifically, a longing for a heavenly home. Because in the story, these people don't settle for the kind of homes the world can give. They only settle, they only hold out for the home that God is making for them. And they see it from afar. They wave at it the way that you're like maybe waving at your neighbors now. Like you see it and you know it's there, but you can't be near it. And you can't be in it, but they don't settle. 
Henry Nouwen was a Belgian Catholic priest who was trained as a psychologist. Um, and he left a tenure track job, I think it was at Harvard. He worked at both Harvard and Yale, but I think he left Harvard when he was giving lectures to undergrads that were like standing room only, which as an academic, I can tell you, doesn't happen. And he went to live in a community of people who, ha uh, who were both able-bodied and disabled, uh, mentally or physically. And so he spent years counseling people and living with people with severe disabilities. And he has this book called The Wounded Healer, um, which I would suggest to you. And in The Wounded Healer, he says this. When we are impatient, when we want to give up our loneliness and try to overcome the separation and incompleteness we feel too soon, we easily relate to our human world with devastating expectation. We ignore what we already know with a deep-seated intuitive knowledge that no love or friendship, no intimate embrace or tender kiss, no community, commune or collective, no man or woman will ever be able to satisfy our desire to be released from our lonely condition. This truth is so disconcerting and painful that we are more prone to play games with our fantasies than to face the truth of our existence. Thus, we keep hoping that one day we'll find the man who really understands our experiences, the woman who will bring peace to our restless life, the job where we can fulfill our potentials, the book which will explain everything, which is more often than not the temptation for me and the place where we can feel at home. Such false hope leads us to make exhausting demands and prepares us for bitterness and dangerous hostility when we start discovering that nobody and nothing can live up to our absolutist expectations. What Nowen says there is, I think, one of the scariest things that humans can learn about ourselves, which is that our desires are deeply misformed, and they misfire, they run in the wrong directions, they're futile, and sometimes they're even destructive. Um, and so here's the reality. None of us is truly at home in the world. Uh, we kind of know that. It's way easier not to know it, like to run from it. But the truth is, the Bible's saying, I think, that if you settle for the earthly home we have, then we miss what God is doing. And so if you think that the house you live in is home, or worse, the house you used to live in is home and you're trying to get back, or you think there is a home out there somewhere, and if you could just get there, um, or if you think the country that we live in is home, or you think the modern world that we've accomplished is home, if you think, uh, if you get your kids to go to the right college and finally marry somebody that is so much easier to get along with than the boyfriend or girlfriend they've had around recently, like if that's gonna be home, um, or if your parents could just cooperate, that that would be home. Uh, or if you could find like generally funnier or more pleasant friends, that would be home. Then you're going to miss the home that God is making. The Bible is trying to get us to see this thing, this difficult thing, that within the longings we have for friends and family and home, there's a deeper longing, there's a deeper desire. And we need to see that and hold it and let it take us over the desire for God. So we have to look, the Bible suggesting, for a heavenly home. Now admittedly, looking for a heavenly home sounds a little bit like, don't worry, after you're dead, it'll all be great. Um, but that's actually not the New Testament's idea of a heavenly home. It's not even Hebrews' notion of a heavenly home. In the New Testament, heaven uh, is, the heavenly home is the kingdom of God. And if you asked Jesus, hey Jesus, 
what's your message in three to five words, he would say, the kingdom of God has drawn near. And if you'd like to hear more about that, you can watch the daily devotional videos where we look at that in Luke. Um, the New Testament actually has this idea that the church is a body of people that bring heaven to earth. That's what the Lord's Prayer is about. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Looking for a heavenly home is not about waiting to die to go somewhere else. It's about bringing heaven down where we are. Heaven's kind of like an embassy, right? Like you could be in Peru or Portugal or Prague. But if you're at the American embassy, is there an American embassy in Prague? I don't know. But if you're at the American embassy, you're on American soil, like it's America in the middle of somewhere else. And that's why Paul says that Christians have their citizenship in heaven. In the ancient world, if you had a Roman citizenship, it didn't mean you lived in Rome. It meant you lived in one of the colonies that Rome had, but your citizenship was in heaven. And in the same way, this world isn't our home. Heaven is our home already. Like we already have the heavenly home. We don't have to wait for anything. It's true that the desire to be with God and the decision to be with Jesus makes all the difference when we go wherever we go next. But it's also true that it makes all the difference now. And so I think the question that we're all probably sitting with is, well, how do you make heaven come to earth? Like, how do you do that? My first thought, this is just a suggestion, is you probably have to stop believing that this world is your home if you're going to make heaven come to earth. You have to give up on the idea that what the world has to offer is all that you're actually longing for. And I think a way that you can start to put that into practice is by practicing hospitality. That the actual spiritual discipline, or as my dad says, feet to your faith, of bringing heaven to earth is hospitality. That's a weird thing to suggest in the middle of a global pandemic. It's a lot easier to suggest if we weren't in the middle of a global pandemic and we could all go to each other's houses because we know what hospitality is, right? We're in the South, for goodness sake. Um, but again, Henry Nouwen in that same book has a suggestion about how the ministry of hospitality works. And he says this, Hospitality asks for the creation of an empty space where the guest can find his own soul. Why is this a healing ministry? It is healing because it takes away the false illusion that wholeness can be given by one to another. It is healing because it does not take away the loneliness and pain of another, but invites him to recognize his loneliness on a level where it can be shared. Many people in this life suffer because they are anxiously searching for the man or the woman, the event or encounter, which will take away their loneliness. But when they enter a house with real hospitality, they soon see that their own wounds must be understood not as sources of despair and bitterness, but as signs that they have to travel on in obedience on the calling of their own wounds. From this, we get an idea of the kind of help a minister may offer. A minister is not a doctor whose primary task is to take away the pain. Rather, he deepens the pain to a level where it can be shared. And that's precisely what happens in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. We have stories of people who deepened their longing for a heavenly home to the point where they could become our new family. And so when all of us are stuck in our houses, when none of us are able um, to join in on the social lives we had before, I think there are plenty of ways that we can learn to find one another in the loneliness that we're all feeling. So you drop off groceries, or you have a list of people that you call every week, or you take part in the City Serve Saturday that this church does. There are ways for us, we have to be a bit creative about it, I'll admit, 
but there are ways for us to connect to people in the world, for us to share that ministry of hospitality, even when it looks totally different. Here's the final point I want to make. Um, it might sound like I've just given us all more spiritual homework. Like I've said, like not only is the world falling down around us, but now you have to take care of other people. But I think an important reminder, and a reminder we find throughout the Bible, is that the work we do as Christians and the calling we have is not something we actually get the gumption to do. It's something that God does first. And so when God called Abraham, right, God called him to a city that God was already building. God doesn't call him to nowhere. Abraham doesn't know where he's going, but God has a city prepared for him. God has been waiting for Abraham. God's been planning for Abraham. And I think that's as true for everybody in the Old Testament and the New Testament as much as it is for us. God is preparing a city for us. We're not made to go it alone in the world. We're made to be in community, not only with one another, but also with God. Um, Kurt Thompson has this way of putting it. He says, we are all born into the world looking for someone who's looking for us. And we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. It seems not only that we long for a home, but we also long to be longed for. My friend uh, Dick Foth says it this way, in paraphrase, he'll say, the gospel is the story where God came to take my place so that I could go back to God's place. And so the truth is that we are born to be sought. We're not just seekers. And the blessing of the Christian gospel, the Bible's notion of home, is that all the while, while you were looking for home, home has been looking for you. And so I don't know where you're at this morning, either spiritually or geographically, but I'm as confident as I can be in anything that the God who made the world and whose spirit is poured out on all flesh is looking for you. God's the kind of God who makes a city, who builds a house, and then he waits in the kitchen window or he stands on the ramparts waiting for you to come home. I'd like to end this sermon uh, with a blessing from that same novelist, Frederick Beekner, that we started out with. Um, Beekner had, uh, when his first grandson was born, wrote a letter that was supposed to be read at that boy's 21st birthday. And he didn't know if he'd be alive or dead, but as it turned out, he survived to the boy's 21st birthday. And so at the end of his letter, he has a birthday wish. And Beekner's birthday wish for his grandson is my blessing today for all of us. So Beekner writes this. My birthday wish is that after wandering through many a street for many a long year to come, you may find your way at last to the fountain that is in the square. My prayer for us today is that all of us would come home. God bless you. Have a good week.